Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Let Me Tell You, a bespoke podcast series from The Irish Examiner with me, Daniel McConnell. In this series, we'll be taking a look at some of the most dramatic moments in recent Irish political history from the unique perspective of one of the key players. This week, we're looking at the circumstances of how Ireland fell into the grips of COVID-19 in March 2020 and how in just two weeks, the government of the day, the acting government, unleashed an unprecedented amount of spending to save the country. We'll also look at, over many months, how extraordinary tensions emerged between the elected government and the medical and scientific advisers they relied upon. With me, here to discuss his central role in all of this, is Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue. You're very welcome to the podcast. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me on. Now, before we get going, we're just going to set the scene with a clip of, I suppose, to give our listeners and ourselves a bit of a reminder of those dramatic days. China is battling a new and rapidly spreading respiratory virus. The number of people infected has tripled to more than 200, and President Xi says it needs to be resolutely contained. Good evening, and we are back from Washington tonight, and we'll get to the impeachment trial in just a moment. But we begin tonight with the growing concern as the toll from that deadly coronavirus now grows, spreading from Wuhan, China. And tonight, that first case here in the U.S., the patient... It never stops. They're telling people to stay indoors. This is what a total lockdown looks like in the center of the coronavirus epidemic in Italy. So with the fact from midnight tonight, for a two-week period until Easter Sunday, April 12th, everybody must stay at home in all circumstances, except for the following situations. To travel to and from work for the purposes of work only where the work is an essential health, social care, or other essential service that cannot be done from home. Pascal, um, Leo Varadkar was took to the steps of Blair House in Washington DC on the on early morning on March the twelfth to essentially close schools, colleges, and, and other public settings in Ireland. But that was clearly the result of in-depth conversations behind the scenes in the hours preceding that. You might bring us through your role, I suppose, what was going on, you know, um, you know between Dublin and, and Washington at that stage. So what was going on, Daniel, across that period is the scale of challenge that Ireland would have to confront was becoming clearer by the moment. Uh, I can vividly, vividly remember uh, when I first heard about COVID in China mm. And I can still remember Simon Harris sitting beside me in cabinet when he briefed us on what he thought could happen. At that point, we were in a cabinet room that we haven't used since COVID hit our country. And Simon used to sit to the left of me. And I can remember looking down at him and seeing his body language and how carefully he was speaking. Mm. And... I realised at that point that we were really facing into something that was absolutely without precedent. And then at that point, the conversation was kind of unduly dominated, as these things frequently are by St. Patrick's Day going to go ahead or not. Yeah, okay. 
which was and kind of talk about the Ireland Italy rugby match and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, I mean, of course, they were all really serious uh, issues and lens through which we were seeing the bigger picture. But the bigger picture was gradually becoming available to the government as it was to every other government. Mm. And in particular, when we saw what was happening in Italy, we realised just how deadly serious this was. Mm. And then, of course, the big challenge we had at that point was, of course, the Dan Taoiseach was on his way to America. Uh, and at that point, then, it would have been uh, Simon Coveney as Tornister was working mainly with Simon Harris to form a view as to what was going on. They were then trying to talk to the Taoiseach. Of course, he was in another time zone doing his St. Patrick's Day programme, mm. uh, which then led up to the statement that you've just uh, played there a moment ago. And I was aware of everything that was going on, briefed on it, but it was really only in the kind of latter half of us across the last few days that we then became fully aware of the economic consequence of it and what we were going to have to do. And by the stage, or by the time that Leo Varadkar essentially issued that order from Washington that, listen, schools and colleges have to close, were you and your officials already at the stage of contingency planning, thinking about issues that, you know, the kind of potential cost of all of this? So we were thinking through the principles of us, but it all happened so quickly, Daniel. Mm. Uh, Like, I can, again, uh, will never forget ever forget. I was sitting in my desk and uh, the Secretary General for the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, Robert Watt, came into me and he says, we believe that in the next week, six to 800,000 people may lose their job. Mm. And we know, given at that point, the work that we had done from a health modelling point of view, we were facing the risk that so many of our own officials could be ill, we mightn't be able to process the applications they would have for normal job seekers payments. Yeah. And like, I believed at that point, uh, we were, and believed, and I was right to believe that we were facing an existential challenge for a modern state. And at that stage, do you establish a, a sort of war room? I, I have memories of Brian Lenehan and Alan Ahern when they were in the department at the time of the financial crash, establishing essentially a war room where, you know, so all hands on deck and, and essentially kind of contingency planning, going through the various options, trying to figure out what they can yeah. do in so, a very quick period of time. Yeah, so the first thing we had to figure out is what could we do to minimise the unemployment shock? And at that point... We had the anticipation, or probably more accurately to say the hope, that we were looking at something that could be a number of months or maybe even a few weeks. And God Mm. knows we all got that wrong. So we were thinking about how can we minimise the unemployment spike and how can we protect the viability of employers so that if we ask them to close, they're able to reopen again. And that was the first challenge we had. And then the second challenge that we have is then... If people are going to lose their jobs through no fault of their own or their employer, they're actually losing their jobs because the government is asking their employer to close down. What is the responsibility we have to those people? Mm. And there were it all happened really, really quickly. So there was one weekend in which myself, the Secretary Generals of the Department of Finance, Public Expenditure and Reform and the Revenue Commissioner himself and two or three officials between a Friday night 
And early the following week, we stayed in the department for days trying to figure out how we could do a wage subsidy scheme and quickly. Okay. And then I met Regina Doherty in a room that you'll know well, Daniel, the Whisker Room yes. in the Department of Finance, which for your listeners is a big meeting room, which we sometimes use for press conferences. And Regina was the Minister for Social Protection at the time. And but that's just also pointing, she had also just lost her seat. I was about to say that, yeah. she just lost her seat. That's exactly it. And she came over to me and we began to think through what would we do? And both of us were of the view that in those circumstances, the normal job seekers' benefits would be inappropriate. Mm. A, we weren't sure we'd actually be able to implement it because of the need to have a means tested. And B, the level of payment, given the scale of social shock that we were facing and the collective challenge everybody would face, we felt was needed to be recalibrated. So basically, Daniel, we two different kind of work streams going on over the space of a week. Yeah trying to figure out not only what we would do, but critically how we would do it quickly, mm. which was the key thing then in the pup not being means tested. Yes. And the key thing then the Revenue Commissioner and Niall Cody, to their eternal credit, came forward on a Friday night and said, we will change all of our systems to pay people money as opposed to tax them. And in a few days, they did it all. And was that the key? Was that the key to unleashing the money quickly and being able to do that? Because obviously people might think certain schemes like this could take months, if not years, to develop. And, sure, and it would take out. a year to do. Yeah. And there was a couple of things that were incredibly important within us. The first one is I had to assess the scale of what we could do and form a view on us. And, you know, even though... Uh, there are so many different political views in relation to us. And even though we've yet to kind of convincingly make the case to the people of Ireland regarding the, you know, the value of this, like we went into the crisis highly credit worthy and with a very strong reputation regarding the finances of our state. Mm. And when the scale of the pandemic hit, I had a series of engagements with the NTMA who are the National Treasury Management Agency. Yeah. Basically, who, the people who go out to They manage the, our borrowing. And they go out and borrow That's money exactly for us. Yeah. They manage yeah. our borrowing. They manage our public debt and they manage our new lending, which are incredibly hard things to do. And I had a series of engagements with their chief executive where we were forming a view regarding how much we could borrow and mm. how quickly. And as I got clearer on that, the next thing then was speed of execution. Mm. What we had to do, we had to do it quickly. And actually speed would trump lots Perfection. of other things because we knew that across that two-week period was the window for citizens feeling we had their back and for employers feeling they had a future. That's really interesting. Now, I want to move to our second clip. This was a clip from the from the Dáil, which met on March 19th. And the Count Corla made a few introductory remarks, but I think he captured the mood of, I think, fear quite well. Take a listen. Arik, I welcome you all and thank you for attending today for this important sitting. Uh, we meet this afternoon in limited numbers at a time of great crisis for our country and indeed for the entire globe. The crisis is not to be underestimated. However much we try to tame the world we share with so much else, we are rarely true masters of our own destiny. Something as cruel and capricious as coronavirus, has come from nowhere to challenge us and to challenge our human confidence. So we arrive here today 
to debate at social distances from each other uh, in the chamber of our nation's proud parliament, utterly shaken and taken aback by the events of the past few days and weeks. Utterly shaken. It was a very apt description, I think, of where we found ourselves at, on that particular day. We know over those couple of days, you yourself had meetings with the heads of the, the Irish banks to kind of initiate payment breaks, mortgage breaks, all that kind of stuff. And obviously, you were still developing these plans, as you said, behind the scenes. But you yourself must have felt a great deal of, if not trepidation, but I don't know. I suppose what was your, what were your feelings? So I've always that? had two feelings throughout the entire pandemic, uh, and they've run equal to each other. The first one is an appreciation of the scale of this threat and what it could mean for all of us. Mm. And I mean that in the gravest of terms. I really felt this was the most severe challenge that a modern democracy can face. Can you look after your people when you get hit by something like this? Mm. So a real sense of this, the scale of that challenge and what it would mean for us. But secondly, always, always certain that we'd overcome it, always. And that was my message to everybody who works with me and the message that I felt so strongly myself. But the only thing that was uncertain is when we would prevail. When, but mm. we would. Mm. And that we had to have that conviction that we could get through it. Uh, and when I began to get that feeling, Daniel, like I didn't think I'd need to sustain it for two years, which is ultimately what we did. Mm. But that period, March to June, like I, th I think with the lifting of the direst challenge of the pandemic, sometimes we can retrofit back into these experiences a sense of optimism or certainty that actually wasn't there at the time. Yeah. Like people say to me now occasionally, well, we knew the vaccines were going to come. Well, actually, during that period, we didn't. It's the truth. We did think vaccines would come, but we didn't know when. We didn't know how much. Mm in what quantity, and we didn't know how they would work. And that period from... Because we're still very early days. I mean, like yeah. vaccines were still a good of nine months, ten months away from... Completely. From, you know. And this was something that the Taunister was, the Taoiseach, the then Taoiseach, was always crystal clear on. I mean, it was his greatest hour mm. across that period. He said, science will win here. But even though we all believed that would be the case, None of us knew when yeah. and how. And that period, even though with the passage of time, as I said, you can retrofit into it certainties, they were not there then. Mm. And one of the things I want to ask you was, because obviously there was a key decision to rely on the advice of Neffet at the time, but I, I get the sense that was there any discussion within government as to whether NEFT was the appropriate body or whether or not, as Owen Murphy, I think, has since suggested that, you know, the National Emergency Coordination Committee, you know, this body that we see when floods and high winds happen, sure. was that not the more appropriate body? Did you have a view as to whether it should be a purely medical or scientific body or whether or not it should have been a more broad, broad focus body so to advise the government? At that point, I did have the view that NEFT were appropriate, but as you have written and others have, during the time afterwards, of course, there were view, differing views, at times tensions in relation to what we do and when, mm. which is all part of the uh, constructive tension that can exist between uh, 
experts who only have one role and elected policymakers who have many roles and the need to reconcile both. But in the early period of it, and for a fair bit of the early period, I was so aware of what was happening in Italy, what was happening in China. And like Daniel, at that time, you know, we were being presented with health and mortality forecasts that were as grave as any government could ever have to yeah. confront. And it wasn't just the Irish government, every government mm. across the world was facing into I think there have been forecasts that are up to 120,000 Irish people could die yeah. from COVID, not get it, but die from it. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously, thankfully, they, they did not come to fruition, sure. not, 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 not by a long shot. But I, I suppose it is interesting when we're doing this kind of postscript on, on the pandemic that a key decision was taken to take a very medical or scientific... It was, and I think it's a very important point that we'll all reflect on in the time ahead and when this becomes kind of history as opposed to very recent history. And the point that I always try to make in these discussions is at that point the government and those of us on the COVID cabinet subcommittee were being presented with mortality risks. So what do I mean by mortality risk? I mean, people dying. Mm -hmm. That was like tens of thousands. And when you're sitting around the table and you get that kind of a briefing to then say, well, actually, we will rely on other people apart from medical experts to help us manage that risk. I didn't believe was an appropriate course for yes. government to take. Mm. But as you know, as we got further into the pandemic and as the strains and costs and mental health and other health impacts became bigger and bigger. Mm. Of course, the the kind of uh, issues we considered got wider. Sure. But obviously it was a it was literally a time of emergency. Um, yeah. And four days later, I think, on or five days later, on March 24th, we'll hear a clip now from Leo Varadkar. You as a government announced a package of 3.7 billion euro yeah. in wage supports and... Uh, the the advance pop up from 203 I think up to, to 350 mm -hmm. let's listen to the clip and we'll get into it then the restrictions I announced in Washington DC are being extended until Sunday the 19th of April and the following new actions are being taken effective from midnight tonight all theatres, clubs, gyms, leisure centres, hairdressers, betting offices marts, markets, casinos, bingo halls, libraries and other similar outlets are to shut all hotels to limit occupancy to essential non-social and non-tourist reasons. All non-essential retail outlets are to close to members of the public and all other retail outlets are to implement physical distancing. A list of essential retail outlets and stores is being provided. All cafes and restaurants should limit supply to takeaways and deliveries only. All sporting events are cancelled, including those held behind closed doors. All playgrounds and holiday caravan parks will close. All places of worship are to restrict numbers entering at any one time to ensure adequate physical distancing. All organised social indoor and outdoor events of any size are not to take place. The Guardian will increase interventions where venues are not in compliance with or where groups of people are not adhering to recommended social distancing. This was a significant restriction on people's movements, liberties and all the rest of it. And, and obviously there was a consequential fallout to the livelihoods of, of people, as we've already discussed. Talk to me about that 3.7 billion package. How was it devised? What did it entail? And how, how confident were you that it would be sufficient to meet the needs of the people? 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So that was the culmination of the work that had got underway a few days earlier when we were appreciating what we might yet need to do. Mm. Uh, So uh, the uh, different things that we thought through at that point were, firstly, we wanted to intervene in a way here that was direct with people and with their employer. So we did not want to be in a situation where a month later or a year later, we had to deal with this issue indirectly through our banking system. We said we need to deal with this upfront mm. in a budgetary way. Number two, it had to be simple. And number three, it had to be quick. And they were the different concepts that we had in our mind across that period. And like, I remember the memo that we used to launch the employment wage subsidy scheme. Mm. Because at that point, we were all sitting in a very, very big room in another part and of government. You say all of us. Who, who, who's the there? Cabinet. Okay. <clears throat> we were all spread in a big conference room in government buildings because we had to adhere to social distancing yeah. like everybody else. And we had worked through the night on the memo mm. and on the system. Like, I remember calling the Taoiseach, like, at, like, really early the morning of that meeting to brief him on the final features of the scheme. And and how much of a free hand did you have as minister on that? Or are you constantly having to say, is this okay? Or is this a no, kind of, we, had was, you been... we were moving so quickly. It was the Taoiseach and myself. And he entrusted me to come up with it and try to get it right. And he yeah. just wanted to see it at the end to make sure he was happy with it and give, give his feedback. But sure, he had a million other things happening at the same time. So like in a in an ideal or normal world, it would have been a normal, you know, cabinet subcommittee, senior officials, I'd meet the teacher, get his feedback, come back with a proposal. The normal things that happens. Yeah. But in this one, um, because of the urgency with which we were trying to move, I think I had one meeting with the Taoiseach and then a phone call. And then I brought it into cabinet because he expected me to get it right. Mm. I knew when I came to him, that I'd have to come to him with a proposal that he could either adjust quickly or sign off. And was there any fear of leaks at that stage? Because I know these things can be incredibly delicate. And I mean, like, what precautions are you taking to ensure that you keep in control of the narrative? Well, we have an, we have an extraordinarily well-informed media here in Ireland, <laughs> as you well know, Daniel, <laughs> that have the ability to uh, find out what's happening uh, with great skill. But actually, the issue kind of looked after itself because we were working so quickly trying to develop us. There was actually only a small number of people involved in it by 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 necessity. And, and to be frank, you know, we really didn't have the time to be doing the kind of normal thing that can happen in politics and when you're forming so policy. So not enough time for play acting or, or we, games? With no time. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was, Heather Humphreys was then the Minister for Business. Uh, Regina was the Minister for Social Protection. And we kept them up to speed what was going on and informed them. But even they knew that particularly with the wage subsidy scheme, speed trumped everything. Mm. 
And again, Daniel, like you're, you, you'll know this, like if you're developing a policy like this, it could easily take a year to do sometimes with countless different meetings, tens of thousands of pages of analysis, mm. just didn't have the time. So because of all of that, the kind of normal political stuff that would happen wasn't, didn't have the time to do it. And I think also our media here, yourself and all your colleagues, there was an appreciation that this was such a grave challenge that the tone between ourselves and your good selves did adjust for a little while because we were all trying to grapple personally and professionally with the scale of what we were trying to do. Mm. A cynic might turn around and say that the government just paid people off to keep to stop social unrest and all the rest. And that, that, that charge has been made by the opposition, essentially. You just unleashed... Without the finesse of a, you know, the or the time to finesse the thing, you just had to throw money at the problem. Essentially, is that a fair criticism, or is that just is that unjust given the circumstances mm. where we found ourselves? I think if such a cynic was to make such an argument, uh, they would uh, be a uh, cynic that does not appreciate the value of the fundamental social contract that exists between the state and its citizen. Mm. That sometimes you can get hit with such a challenge that the state has to do things that in normal times it would not do. Mm. Of course, it's such a cynic was to make such a charge as well. I could point to the fact now uh, that we have a record number of people at work and our national finances have recovered reasonably well from it to point that the scale of actually what we did worked. Mm. And as you'll know, Daniel, like outside of these eras and outside of these times, I take such a cautious and incremental approach to policy because mm. it's my job. Uh, but I knew at that point the pendulum had to go into the direction. In terms of like, obviously, those measures were initially put in, I think, place for 12 weeks. Yeah. And they ultimately ended up being in place for many more than 12 weeks, many Maybe multiples of 12 weeks. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you look back on them as being successful, unsuccessful? Or what's your what's your view back looking at, at those particular that the measures that were announced on that particular day on March 24th? So I guess in, in, you know, in, in your work and in the work of people who analyse policies and politics, you'll form definitive views with the passage of time on these things. My own view uh, on it is that in particular, the employment wage subsidy scheme <clears throat> was the most significant economic intervention in our state, in our history, in our modern history, um, since we joined the EEC, since we opened up our economy, apart from the bank guarantee. Mm. It's that big. Okay. And if you look at that and its kind of uh, uh, accompanying policy, which was the PUP, uh, they're responsible for around two thirds of the 32 billion euro that we borrowed. Um, but the benefit of us can now be seen in an economy that has successfully fully reopened the viability of employers now and the savings that consumers and citizens had as they got through the pandemic. Mm. So I really, really believe they worked. Are there things that I would have done differently? Are there things that I learned across the way, along the way? If I had the benefit of hindsight, are there things I would have what done would differently? What would you have done differently? You raise it. What would you have done? So if, um, particularly on the employment wage subsidy scheme, um, if I had my time all over again, and particularly in my time before the pandemic all over again, I think it would have been incredibly helpful if we had a framework like that already developed. Mm. 
like one of the reasons why finance ministers don't want to have frameworks like that developed is that any time you get into a mild difficulty, everybody says, well, let's turn on an employment wage subsidy scheme. Yes, yeah, yeah. So finance ministers tend to be quite allergic to having something like that on the shelf because with the slightest difficulty, you're called to take it off the shelf and do it. But all that being said, if we had had that scheme available, as for example, Germany does mm. and did, and if we'd been able to turn it on even quicker, we probably would have uh, been able to take down again the number of people who went on to the pandemic unemployment payment. Okay, yeah, okay. And uh, that could have really influenced where we were from an employment point of view and an employer point of view. Mm. That's my big learning from that period. Interesting. And so, if, we, if we hadn't lurched, moved into a series of other difficulties and challenges right after the pandemic, uh, that would be the kind of thing that uh, I'm sure we would have already so that, progressed. That was March 24th, yeah. still only 12 days after Leo Varadkar has essentially begun the, the first lockdown. Yeah. And we moved to March 27th, the fr that Friday, another cabinet meeting hastily arranged and another a further a total lockdown for two weeks we have a clip now from the Chief Medical Officer Tony Holland essentially explaining why we needed to do it let's take a listen and while we think we're still at an early point in the course of this disease we think now is the time for us to move to strengthen the measures further uh, to try to spend two weeks to really suppress the transmission of this virus as much as is possible in the community that with these additional strengthening measures we can drive the infection back out of the community and more into households and we can continue our public health advice to people who have symptoms. Was it a stage or was it a sense because with so many announcements coming, you know, hot step on top of each other, was there a sense that things were maybe getting out of control from your perspective or do you think it was just a prudent act at that stage to move to a full, you know, the two, lock the two week lockdown circuit breaker essentially? It was absolutely the right decision to do. Uh, were things out of control? No. Were we under strain? And were we trying to respond back to something that was changing really quickly? Yes, we were. And do you, or did you at that point ever question how far an acting government without essentially, you know, a dull mandate could actually go? Because remember that obviously there were discussions later towards the changeover of government that later that summer that really, you know, there's a limit to what an, an acting government could do or do you just think you were you had to deal with the emergency in front of you? Never questioned it. I uh, didn't for two reasons. Uh, the government is government until such a time as it's no longer the government. Mm. And secondly, for us to entertain thoughts regarding our capacity and what we could do could have cost people their health. So we had to act. Alongside that, though, I was always absolutely of the view that the doll needed to sit, the doll needed to function. We had to be held to account for what we are doing. Mm. Because while I would make, and as I've just done, make the case to you that the government is the government until such a time as it's replaced by another one, that view only works also if you have an Oireachtas available. Mm. And that's why, even though it was tricky at the time and we, we, we uh, you know, did prove a kind of a challenge to be able to do it well, it's vital that the doll sat. How unified was the government at that time between March and, say, the changeover? Because I, I can imagine when you've independent ministers who have lost their seats, like Shane Ross and others, like Regina Doherty, your former colleague, your cabinet colleague, um, still having to perform their functions while not, no longer having a kind of an elected mandate. That obviously must have put a strain on relations or, or did it, or was there still that un, unity of purpose at that stage through, through that period? There was a unity of purpose because the test was so severe. 
I mean, we came into that period in a, you know, in a kind of a, a, a challenging position from a personal point of view because it was the aftermath of an election. And as you'll know from covering elections and being very active in them, they're tremendously gruelling and demanding experiences mm. to go through. As, and you were director of elections yeah. as well, so you had an extra kind of pressure yeah, there Yeah, it was well. really hard. It hadn't gone the way we would have hoped. And we were all grappling with the kind of consequences of all of that. Mm. And then the pandemic hit. But of course, what, what happened, what did happen across the period is that it did act as a kind of cementing and unifying force within the government. Um, because we realised that this, we had to manage this on behalf of the country. But it also did change my views regarding should we be in the next government and what role we should play in relation to us. Talk to me about that, because I think vividly remember, like it was Leo Varadkar's stated position that Fine Gael should really go into opposition. But that did change the closer you got to, like obviously it became very clear that the only real viable option was a, a coalition between yourselves, Fianna Fáil and, and the Green Party. But I'd say there's quite a number of your colleagues who would have much preferred to have gone into opposition. Yeah, there was a big debate within Fine Gael and within our parliamentary party on us. And I can remember one epic meeting in which we debated this for uh, a day about what we would do. Uh, but it did, two things became clearer as uh, the, uh, uh, the, with the passage of time. The first one is that while, as I said, a government is a government until it's replaced, it also became really clear that the pandemic wasn't going anywhere. Mm. And in the interests and need of our country to be able to respond back to that and deal with it, a refreshed government with a majority in our parliament was very, very appropriate. And that became apparent to a few of us and me with the passage of a number of weeks. And then the second thing is, you know, as I got over the consequences of the election, you know, I've always believed that the only point of putting yourself forward as a representative for your Dublin Central, trying to get into the Doyle, is you're there to serve. And you can only serve by being in government. Mm. And it's like in the weeks after the election, you know, it was a tough time. But as that, election receded a little bit I just said God you know this we have such a challenge coming up now to get through the pandemic and then get over it mm. I always knew we would do it but I just felt that the place to be in in trying to play a role in helping our country do that is ultimately to be in government Is it fair to say because I've obviously read Richard Chambers book and I've read uh, Hugh O'Connell and Jack Chambers or Jack Horgan Jones book I'm sure you have a book in it yourself on well, it Daniel. Well I'm not sure the public appetite is there <laughs> for another book on this but I think what was very clear is the changeover of government seemed to be very disruptive to the structures that were in place that had worked well in the early stages of the pandemic and it was quite rocky there for a period and heaped upon that were the tensions between government and NEFA, which were because we remember in summertime, infection levels were pretty low. There were demands for the country to open up and all that kind of stuff. Speak to me about that changeover and speak to me about the difficulties, if there were any, from your perspective, as to momentum being lost, essentially, from you know, the government effort. Yeah, I mean, the, because of the need at that point to appoint a new government, of course, it did mean... Uh, that there was changes in personnel. And like it's difficult enough becoming a minister in normal circumstances. And look, everybody who becomes a minister is very privileged and delighted to get there. 
But the journey from being a member of Adoyle to a member of government is they're two different worlds. Mm. And then for that journey to happen when we're dealing with a pandemic was a real test for lots of my colleagues, which I feel they, they rose to. So, but, but, but it was still, of course, it was a challenge. Yeah. But talk, So you had Simon Harrison since he was the Minister for Health. I, I think a large people would it'd be fair to say felt he had done a reasonable job on the pandemic. Obviously, he, there was a confidence issue which had precipitated the general election before that. But on the pandemic, he himself and Varadkar and yourself had been seen to kind of do a, a good job. Where was the logic in removing him and his Secretary General on the same day from the key department that was handling the pandemic? Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, a, um, of course, it did cause us, um, you know, moments of transition as we moved from one team to the other. But Daniel, you were asking me the point earlier on, which is an important question about the legitimacy of government mm. and how long a government can be in office after an election has taken place. And while I've made the case to you that constitutionally, uh, I think the issue is still clear. On the other hand, the uh, moments of transition are a price worth paying for having a government in place then that has a majority in the Doyle and that can argue is the result of a general election. Mm. Uh, and uh, yes, when people were changing, of course it meant that experience was moved and so on. But Simon was still at the cabinet table. I was still there and Leo was still there. Okay. One of the key moments of tension which erupted was that October when Tony Holland came back from, he had gone off on compassionate leave to take care of his now late wife, uh, very sadly. Um, but he obviously decided that things were moving badly and and having, I suppose, had Neffet on a, a, a Thursday said level two, a level two lockdown or a level two restrictions were fine. Come a, thir- a Sunday night, we're talking about a full level five lockdown. We have a clip of Leo Varadkar on the Claire Byrne show uh, giving his response to that, that move. We'll take a listen. Um, but what happened on Sunday night came out of the blue. Uh, last Thursday, um, when we received our advice from Neffed, they're all in writing. There was no suggestion whatsoever that they were contemplating, uh, uh, suggesting that we move to level five. Um, but we heard them out, uh, sat down with them today as ministers for more than two hours, allowed them to make their case, had a cabinet meeting, considered it very carefully and we decided not to accept the, vi- the advice at this time. And the triggers that are there for Level 5 were not met in our view. There was no sudden change in the last three days uh, that legitimised a move from, from 2 to 5. And nothing that um, uh, nothing in the, in, the, in the space of three days that warranted them changing their advice from going to Level 2 to Level 5. Uh, Neffet's assessment uh, that our hospitals were imminently facing the possibility of being overwhelmed, our ICUs and, and our beds, um, was not shared uh, by the CEO of the HSC uh, and the HSC board were not consulted on, on this. They thought that was a political matter for us and that was not the right okay. way to, to do this. To so spring, now, spring something like I, that on us. Uh, I've listened to you night. really carefully there and I'm starting to lose confidence in the Chief Medical Officer because he hadn't thought, thought, thought all of this through as you outlined. Well, I, I, I think what happened in the last couple of days wasn't good for anyone, wasn't good for Neffet. Uh, isn't good for government and really wasn't good for the Irish people, many of whom were worried sick today, wondering whether they had a job tomorrow. That was an extraordinary moment through the whole entire pandemic. And obviously, both books that we've referenced already had said that that was a, tr- a marked turning point in the relationship between government and Neffet. What was your view when you saw Leo Varadkar on TV that night? So, you just to put a bit of context around that, myself and Michael McGrath were trying to do a budget over that weekend. And we were in the run into a budget that was all about trying to indicate to the people of Ireland that we had a plan, which we did have a plan, that would ultimately help the economy get through this. 
and myself and Michael were working flat out to pull that together. And over that weekend, on the Sunday, I got a phone call from a member of the then Tarnished the team and then from the Tarnished saying, everything's just changed course. And I had a really strong reaction to it. I was really, really angry about it uh, because it was such a, so disruptive to the message of composure and to the need to indicate we had a plan. Were you annoyed at the, the, the change in stance or the fact that it leaked out that Sunday night? It's more the change in stance because it was such a substantive issue for us. Mm. But I, I, I do want to take a step back though on it all and I've been thinking about this as the interview goes on. I'm going to try and use an analogy and you'll bear with me when sure. I use this analogy, right? Because I don't know if it'll work, but you'll edit it out <laughs> if it doesn't, Daniel, right? <laughs> I remember reading when I, when I timed to kind of read history, this person came up with the idea of hedgehogs and foxes. And hedgehogs are all about somebody who knows one thing really well. Mm. And foxes are about a person who has to know lots of things, but not know them as well as the person who knows one thing deeply. Mm. And it is helpful for thinking about where we were at that point and our relationship with our public health experts. Because our public health experts had a single job, which was hugely important, that they advised on. But when you're in government, even in a pandemic, you do have to balance that advice up against a range of other matters. And that's the dilemma the government was always in, how to get that balance right. Now, I think overall, with the ups and downs along the way, over the course of two years, I'd made the case that I think we got the balance right. But there's little point pretending to you that across that period it was always smooth mm. and always clear. Like I have the height of respect and affection for Tony Houlihan and for the team that were on effort. But it doesn't mean that our meetings were always very straightforward and mm. easy. They yeah. weren't. Because he felt the gravity of the advice that he was giving. And God, I felt the gravity of the advice that I was going to implement. The effect it was having on people's lives. That's something I had to take responsibility for too. And that was just one of those moments in which those... Um, dynamics did collide. Did I'll, you... I'll always remember, Daniel, actually, that night doing a press conference myself. Mm. And I think I was doing the press conference on the latest range of economic supports. And, uh, uh, of course, I was there saying, look, we're working our way through this. This has been difficult, but we'll, you know, we're going to keep on working well together. And one of your colleagues said to me, well, your party leader is just on the Claire Byrne show <laughs> at the moment. And uh, he's giving his mind on the topic. Uh, what do you think? And I think I said, I better watch the interview first. Yeah. Uh, but it was just a tough moment. It has been said by some of your colleagues speaking to me privately through that period, it was a mistake to allow Neff to have a nightly forum broadcasting straight into the homes of everybody to almost assert itself as a almost rival administration to the government, to which the government, which ultimately led to these confusions and tensions and all the rest of it. Do you have a view on that? I do, and I think that that counter view, I wouldn't agree with us because one of the things that we were remarkable at in our country was the, um, uh, the degree to which our citizens followed public health advice. And like you again will remember, Daniel, that for much of those period, the period it was advice, 
you know, it yes, it did have a legislative underpinning and legal underpinning a little later on. Mm. But when we asked people to stay at home, we were asking them to stay at home. And the overwhelming majority of people did and did follow the advice. And I think there are three reasons why that happened. Number one is people felt that we had their back economically. Number two, our country does have a high level of solidarity and cohesion when really tested. And number three, there was faith in the experts who were speaking to us at that point. Mm. And I do believe the prominent role that Neffet played in explaining their advice and the fact that doctors doing it rather than me, Though God knows I had to do it lots of other times as well and reinforce it. But the fact that it was public health professionals saying, Daniel, this is why you can't leave your home, Mm. I think was a very powerful and positive force. Okay, we're now coming out of it. We're now kind of hopefully not ever going to experience a lockdown like this any time soon. What was your biggest mistake during COVID-19 or the government's biggest mistake during COVID-19? So... You know, in truth, you look back across the period and I can think of hundreds of different things that I had with the benefit of hindsight. I said this a moment ago, I might have done differently or better. But I'll tell you what's the moment that sat with me the hardest, which is the uh, that moment in the run up to the Christmas, I think of 2020, 20, yeah. when we made the decision to uh, moderate public health restrictions that ultimately we had to undo then a few weeks later. Mm. And I certainly found that a really, really demanding period. And I always look back at my role in the run up to that and challenge myself to think that I missed something. Should I have done something differently? Should should I have had different judgment? And like, I, I will always remember sitting at my desk in the Department of Finance when I realized that we were going to have to reverse course. And I got out all my cabinet papers and all the health advice. Mm for the period that led up to us moderating the health guidance and thinking to myself, God, you know, what did I miss? What should I have said? What did I get wrong? And that's certainly a period that I really felt the consequence of at the end of December and in early January. And like, I remember each day I would check in with the HSE to find out what was happening in our hospitals at the end of December and early 2021. Mm. And I certainly found that a really hard time because I was aware that the decision that we made in moderating public health restrictions had played a role then in some people getting sick. Getting sick. Now, it would only be fair to ask you, what do you think your biggest success of that period was? Uh, I think, well... When all is said and done, you probably want to edit that silence out as well because I'm thinking about your <laughs> question to me. Effect, you know? Like, I, 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 I don't think of it in terms of successes, to be frank, because it was such a hard time. Mm. I think to look back and talk about the language of, you know, success, success just feel a little inappropriate okay. given that what everybody went through. Mm. But the things that I will always stand over and make the case for it's like when you're the fi- when you're the minister for finance for your country, your guiding solemn role is 
it's your job to look after the financial stability of the state. Mm. That is a role that sits very deeply with the person who sits in Merrion Square. And what I will take with me for the rest of my time is that when we got tested in that way, we stood up Mm. and we recovered. And in particular, the employment wage subsidy scheme and the PUP worked. And while I would recoil from talking about personal successes, because I'll never forget how hard the time was. Like when I walked around the city this morning on my way to come up to you and to see cafes open and our businesses open and to see our economy open and so many people employing again, employed again, we got those interventions right. Mm. And when our stability got hit by a, a disease that nobody saw coming in the scale that it did and our economic stability was tested, we were not found wanting and we rose to that challenge. And um, that's something that uh, a, a feeling and an, rec- an appreciation of that time that will stay with me. Well, that's been a fascinating exploration of that period of time. It was supposed to last 25 minutes. I think we've gone a good bit over that. But yeah, I did my pause out though, won't anyway, you? Well, listen, my thanks and to... And the foxes <laughs> on the hedgehog bits. I don't know if that survived the test it, either. It, it may do, it may do. Well, listen, my thanks to you, the listener, for being with us. My thanks to Pascal Dunne, who's the Minister of Finance, for being our guest with us today. The podcast was produced by Paul Hosford and me, Danny McConnell. On sound and editing is Jennifer Ryan. Join us next time for another episode of Let Me Tell You from the Irish Examiner. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.